0: God's Word, Book of Romans, Chapter 1, Romans, Chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 8, and I'll read to verse 17, Romans, Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, and I'll read to verse 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. As far as the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of the word of God. Lord, our longing is that we might be knowledgeable students of your word, that we would also be sincere in that endeavor, that we would not merely seek doctrine, but that we would seek your glory, that we would walk in step with the Spirit, that we would not only know your law, but that we would delight in the doing of it. Lord, our request is that we might be transformed day after day, after the image and pattern of the one who gave his life for us, that we might be holy, oh Lord, even as you are holy, that we might be, as Paul said of himself, slaves to a better master, a gracious and glorious master, a master who has revealed himself, not as a tyrant, but as one who is willing, able, and has shown himself to be the only Savior of our sins. And so, Lord, may we desire in the extraordinary truth of your word as we look at the gospel this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we come to the fifth in this series of sermons from the book of Romans. And you probably have gotten the idea that I'm not in a hurry. We ought not be in a hurry. All great books are worth lingering in, searching out the corners and those spaces in which we find truths that are not only a true because God has said them, but they are powerful because God has said them. Last week I covered to some degree Paul's apostolic calling and his apostolic heart that he was one who possessed a desire and a readiness to preach the gospel to this place that he wanted to go. Not only to the Romans, not only to those early in his ministry, but he longed to go west to the nation of Spain. Christ had even said to his disciples while he was on earth, you will be my disciples, you will be my apostles, you will bear witness of me in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And what happened in the resurrection of Christ is is an earth-shaking event. In fact, even at the time of Christ's own resurrection, there were others in that city that were raised from the dead, that there is great fruit that continues to be brought in in this harvest-bringing ministry that Christ has called his disciples and we who are part of that line, the great fruit of his resurrection. And it is this gospel that Paul longed to preach that I want to focus on this morning. It is a gospel that changes the world. It is a gospel that is preached that is from faith to faith, that brings about life. So two points that I want to make this morning, as it relates to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first, what the gospel is. What the gospel is, and then secondly, what the gospel does. As it relates to that first point, what the gospel is, I want to look at the history of salvation, the architect of our salvation, the message itself of the gospel. And then under that second heading as to what the gospel does, of how it goes out into the world and brings in the harvest, how is it effectual, how it is effectual, under a true saving and lively faith, and how it is universal in that it is not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile However, beginning with the first point, what the gospel is, what must be said about the gospel from the beginning is that it is God's plan of salvation. Now, in his commentary on the book of Romans, Charles Hodge writes this. The grand idea of this epistle and the whole of the Bible is that the ground of our justification that is to be made right before God And the source of our sanctification, to grow in grace, are not in ourselves, that neither human merit nor human power can have any glory in our salvation. To the merit of Christ, we owe our acceptance with God, and to the power of the Holy Ghost, our preparation for his presence. There is no man glory. No glory that belongs to us in our salvation. Whether it is justification, having been made right before God, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. If you want to know and have a good definition of justification and sanctification, go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The act of... Of God's free grace, whereby Christ's righteousness becomes our own. That's justification. Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby we are made more and more to live to righteousness and die to sin. This, though, is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And who gets the glory for this? God. And so the scriptures principally teach us the way of salvation. God's plan. And it began a long time ago. In Genesis chapter 3, and it has continued this only true perfect plan of salvation. And it was always about the Redeemer, it was always about the seed who would come, born of the woman whose ankle or heel would be crushed, and yet he would crush the head of Satan himself. And so, the gospel is a clear, understandable, gracious, and undeserved expression. Of God's plan to bring about salvation, reconciliation, peace between Himself and man, and man with man through the Redeemer. And though it is not everywhere the same on every page of Scripture, without the gospel, there is no need for revelation. There is no culmination of that revelation, there is no grace and beauty and glory to that revelation. In fact, one of the greatest glimpses of that reality that God is the architect of our redemption and the architecture itself is found in Genesis 28 where Jacob is standing beside God in the midst of this dream and the Lord turns to Jacob and there they, they're speaking with one another and Jacob sees what would be like a ziggurat, a, a religious structure upon which angels were ascending and descending. And what Jacob saw was a tower that could accomplish what Babel could not. Remember what happened at Babel? Man said, let's build a tower into the presence of God. That is an expression of all man-made religion. It's a tower of Islam. It's a tower of Judaism. It's a tower of Hinduism or Taoism or every other secular humanistic endeavor. And God had to come down to see it. It was not capable to accomplish what they built it for. But Jacob sees a tower that goes all the way to heaven and all the way to earth. It mediates God's presence. Now, Jacob did not understand all of that. But we do. Why? Because in John's gospel, John 1, what does Jesus say of himself? I am the one upon whom angels ascend and descend how glorious the gospel becomes when we understand all of this Old Testament insight that the gospel revealed is in many ways the gospel concealed yet ever increasing in its clarity as to the person and work of the Messiah, the further you go. And so the architect and the architecture The one who has designed and the one who mediates is the triune God. And so the gospel is God's plan of salvation. And it is the true record of that plan. And so when you say, Have you heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are you referencing? That very clear sense, sentiment, instruction that no man can be saved aside from except from the work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. But that Christ-centered gospel is not novel and new with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is ancient It is glorious. It is beautiful because it is a plan that comes from the one who is glorious and beautiful and true and righteous. And so the gospel is the plan. But the gospel is also redemption accomplished and applied. Now when I speak of redemption accomplished and applied... I'm speaking of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Christ came and did the work that was necessary. He accomplished the work of reconciliation. And the application of that work begins with the book of Acts. And the application, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the sending out of that Gospel into the nations but it has already been accomplished, has it not? And it is not merely a guarantee of opportunity. What I mean by that is Christ did not merely come so that man might be saved. Christ died for the elect and we were with him on the cross in this eternal union with him. His Death, burial, and resurrection is therefore effectual to all who believe. And it is particular in who it was for. It is for all who believe. And who is part of that? Well, those to whom Paul is writing. Paul thanks, in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul rejoices that God has, through his Son, by the Holy Spirit, Giving saving, has given saving faith to those who were in Rome. Not all Romans, but those who were in the church, those who testified, those who confessed, those who believed, those who were members here in the church. It is the application of Christ's full salvation. That Christ is the Messiah, the one promised long ago, And he must be believed upon. Look at verse 16. We'll jump around a little bit this morning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now, we'll get to this particular nature of the redeeming work of Christ, especially by Romans chapter 9, which is the big election chapter. But for now... It is enough for us to say that the means by which the righteousness of Christ is given to us and those who receive it are those who believe. But this application of the righteousness of Christ is only possible because it has been accomplished. But it wasn't only accomplished for New Testament saints after the fact. When Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, Abraham was with Christ on the cross when he died. In union. I don't mean he was physically present. That's nonsense. But the Father who has given to the Son a people, a bride, a body, before time began, before the foundations of the world were laid, the Father gave to Christ Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He did not give Esau to Christ. He did not. Esau was not part of the family, the body of Christ. We know this because of Romans chapter 9. Who then determines all of this? Well, it is not you or me. And so the gospel is not merely the working out of our salvation. It is the communication of the glorious design of God. And so even within the gospel is the nature of its application to sinners such as ourselves built into God's plan that only those whom God has chosen have it applied to them. And this is good because if the choice was left up to you and to me, guess who would choose? Not me. Not you. But only. Well, no one. And so this sovereign accomplishment and application guarantees not only that there is, a one, there is one who is the perfect sacrifice, but that there will actually be those who... Take the righteousness of Christ and they wear it because it is given to them. And the way that this is possible is because the gospel is also power unto life. So the gospel is God's plan. The gospel is God's sovereign redemption accomplished and applied. And the gospel is also power unto life. That's what he says. Verse 16 again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now concerning the power of the gospel, John Murray writes this, God saves through the message of the gospel. And the implication is that God's power as it is operative unto salvation is through the gospel alone. What I mean by that is this. In order for a man or a woman or a child to be saved, it is necessary that the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is heard by them. The gospel is operative. That means it is powerful. It is the mechanism that brings about salvation through the gospel alone, not by invention, not by a sincere faith in some other God and just living a good life. Which is why in Romans 8, Paul says to the church, we need to get pastors out into the field. Why? Because it is through hearing that faith comes. The hearing of what? The gospel. Now that does not mean... That the only thing that the preacher should preach is the gospel or a very narrow idea of the gospel. Though there are some in the church today that would say, don't do application, only do the gospel. And I say, how will I know how to live? There is much more to the Christian life than the gospel, but there is no Christian life without the gospel. And the only thing that empowers us to be justified and sanctified, the only thing that brings those things, is the gospel of faith. And so, when the gospel is preached, it is the true offer. The sincere offer. It is the goodwill offer of God that if you believe and lay hold of Christ, you Will be saved. Because it is for everyone who believes. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so the question for us at the outset of all Christian life is this: not do I know the law? Am I a member of a church? Am I nice to my neighbor? Do I dress well? It's what? Do I lay hold of Christ's merits by faith? For that is the entryway into the kingdom of Christ. And God saves through that very message. There is a calling then that is part of the gospel that must be believed by faith. And so there is no salvation in the Bible that is not accomplished by faith. Do you believe it? That's a question that we ought to ask ourselves, not because we doubt the goodness of God, but because it is very easy for us to move past the gospel of faith into a gospel of something else. Do you believe that Christ has come and died that you might be forgiven? Do you understand the incredible blessing that is yours that you have seen and heard that Christ has come, that he has died, that he has risen again? And so the gospel proclaims one central truth. There is but one way to be saved. And the reason why Paul was so ready to preach it was because at the end of the day, it was the only hope for Spain. It's the only hope for Gaston County. It's the only hope for any of the places where we live or any of the people that we know or ourselves Now next week I'll talk more about why Paul says I am not ashamed and why the gospel of Christ deals with the shame not only that we felt in the curse but also amidst the people who endeavor to do religion their own way and deny the fact that they need to be saved from anything. But for now... What I want to talk about is what the gospel does. Now, first and foremost, the gospel does that which God designed the gospel to do. It is powerful because God is the designer. God is the accomplisher and the applier of it. And so the gospel goes out into the world and it brings in the harvest. And the way that it does it is Christ sends out his emissaries armed with this very simple message and he says through the proclamation of that message that man only by Christ can be redeemed, men will come not because of their own righteousness but because the Spirit gets them by the lapels And he changes their hearts and he gives them new life and he brings them into the kingdom. Not begrudgingly, he makes us happy. Now how does he do that? Because at some point in your life and mine, out of the sight of the misery of our sin and rebellion, we look at it and go, there's no hope in this stuff. I can't hide from the reality that there is a God, that he is angry with me. And apart from the saving work of Christ, I stand condemned before him. And so I come to the cross of Christ and I bow before it and I say, I am a worm. I am a sinner. I am undone. Free me from my sins. And Christ says, Okay, of course. It is for everyone who believes. It brings forth fruit. And so we go out armed as those called to be emissaries of Christ. Ministers, officers, members. And we have armed in our mouths that sword of the spirit that is the word of God that divides. But it brings healing. And the first thing we say is what? That the peace that is necessary for you to live and accomplish the purpose for which you have been made, you must be at peace with your Maker, who is also your Redeemer. And you must plead His blood for your sins. You must believe upon Him and you shall be saved. And you ask, how does that happen? by the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. And believe me, I've tried it all. Parents, you've tried it all, right, with your children? You've tried buying them, manipulating them, being tender with them. Yelling at them, you've tried every form of human operation and you look at them and you go, Lord, what is it going to take? What does it take? It takes not only the gospel that goes forth, but it takes a believing heart that takes hold of the gospel by faith, from faith to faith. And just because men and women and children hear the gospel does not mean that the Spirit is operating to give them faith. Sometimes the preaching of the gospel does what? It hardens hearts. The time of Christ's death, the Word of God incarnate stood before those who were there and they should have said what? I am a sinner and I am undone. Show me the way to righteousness. And yet, what did they say? The Jews cried out, Crucify him. And the Romans had part in it. And yet, at the end of the day, Christ died not because the Jews wanted him dead, Christ died because you were there. You were the one in need of salvation. Because God had designed before the foundations of the world were laid that you would come into existence through these generations of people that met and one day you would be conceived and born into the world and you needed to be reborn. And Christ, ever before you lived the day, ever before your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents ever got together, set his eternal love and affection upon you and he died for you. And you were there with him. Not in some sort of cosmic zygote form, right? But in the eternal decrees, the union of God's redemptive design, you were present with him. And that is why when we proclaim the gospel, it has fruit because it depends not upon me or upon you, but because of the divine purposes and plan of God and the Spirit who is powerful. And so it brings about an effectual, saving, lively, true faith. Because the gospel is not pure theism or doctrine of God. It is not just the plan, nor is it a clear ethic and morality. No, it is what? It's nuclear material. It is the power source. It is the very thing that brings about the salvation of the nations. Because it's not just for Jews. And it didn't just stay in Jerusalem. You and I, saints, have brothers and sisters in places where people used to eat people. And what turned them from cannibals to people who don't eat people anymore? It was going to the book section, right, at Barnes & Noble and learning how to properly eat, right? Let's just stop eating people. Let's have a well-balanced diet. What was it? It was the gospel. It was the Spirit of God at work in the hearts of barbarians and Greeks. I mean, what do you think this area would have been like 2,000 years ago when Christ came? What was the land that would one day become Gaston County? Who was living here? Savages. I don't mean that term condescendingly with some sort of ethnic pride. I mean those who were very much geographically, covenantally far removed from the preaching of the gospel. But when the preaching of the gospel made its way over here on these little boats and these Bibles in hand and men began to preach, what happened? People believed. And they stopped killing one another and eating one another and serving pagan gods and clothing themselves with something that could not protect them. Because the gospel is effectual for Jew and for Greek or Gentile. How is that possible? For what Paul says in verse 17. Because it is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness from God It is the righteousness that God provides in place of our unrighteousness. And so then Paul says this after revealed from faith to faith. Now, Paul is not saying the same thing twice to make emphasis. There is only one kind of gospel, it is a gospel from faith. The just, as he says at the end, shall live by faith. The righteousness of God comes to us through faith and to faith, that is, to everyone who believes. Now concerning this statement, John Murray writes, "If you want a wonderful commentary in the book of Romans, it's not cheap, but it's a beautiful commentary. It's a well-written commentary. It is John Murray's commentary on the book of Romans. Erdman's published one, and then I think you... I would just go to Reformation Heritage Books and buy it from there. This is what Murray says. From faith points to the truth that only by faith are we the beneficiaries of this righteousness. And so it is a faith righteousness, as truly as it is a God righteousness. It's not our own. It is alien. Who faith underlines the truth that every believer is the beneficiary whatever his race or culture or the degree of his faith. Faith always carries with it the justifying righteousness of God. Now this is glorious because what it means is there are no Christians... Who believing the gospel are part of the way there. That the only infallible grounds of our assurance is that even with little faith, you have the whole of Christ's righteousness. I, I need you to get that. Because oftentimes in the Christian life, either because we've inflicted ourselves with harm due to our own sin or because sometimes we come to the table and perhaps some of you have heard a false teacher inject doubt into your mind about the exclusive nature of the truth claims of Scripture. Christ does not say he seems to be struggling. Let's dial back the faith gospel stuff a little bit. We'll give him 80%. He's struggling. This is how we handle one another, isn't it? Spouses, (laughs) we only say I love you when we feel like we... That sort of withholding, there is no withholding. When we believe the full enchilada of Christ's righteousness is given to us and it is never taken away from us. God doesn't say here, no, no here, no, it, no. He's given it. Murray says it like a gentleman theologian. I say enchilada. I have to remember it somehow. <laughs> and it is then the only hope for the world. The gospel becomes the only hope for the world. How is it that in the book of Revelation? We see the gospel not progressing far beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria in the book of Acts. But by the time we get to the book of Revelation, who stands around the throne of Christ? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. How do we get from Jerusalem to the whole world? How? Through the gospel. Because Christ, the Son, and the Father have sent their word out into the nations by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who is God, not the power of the second and first person. He is God and he goes forth into the world and he transforms barbarians and Greeks and Gentiles and Jews. It is for everyone it is for everyone who believes because it is by faith. That is the fruit that the gospel brings. And so we say, in colloquial terms, that the ground is therefore level at the foot of the cross. As Habakkuk says, Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. It is by faith that men become the beneficiaries of the righteousness of Christ. You and I, dear saints, that for those who do believe, it is because Christ has come and died for us. There is then no hope of righteousness apart from what the gospel promises. So there's been a lot of theology today. And much in the way of expanding a few, though rich, dense words. My hope for you is not that you might merely hold on to orthodoxy as a kind of shibboleth for conversations you have for reformed Christians. Right? The club. And if you say a certain number of words in a certain sequence a certain number of times, people will look at you and go, wow, you must believe. (laughs) Or you know there's no secret handshake. It's not impersonal power or magic, but it is the personal power of Almighty God working to bring about the bringing in of the lost sheep of Israel. What I mean is this that for those who truly know and love the gospel and understand what it means, we will be not only adherents to the truth of it, but we will not be able to help being emissaries, proclaimers of it, because it is like a fire that burns in our bellies because we know what it does. The gospel makes us pyromaniacs. Willing and ready to set the world ablaze with the truth that brings about God's purposes. For His glory, through the sending of His Son, by believing in Him. Let's pray.